Hey guys, it's Kathy. Welcome back to the podcast. So today we're dropping part two of the top moments from the podcast. As you know, we just celebrated 800 episodes and this is just a little continuity of some of those golden nuggets of these 800 episodes. In case you already haven't entered the giveaway, um, we're going to be adding to that. We're going to be giving eight of you a $100 gift card. So go to my Instagram and check for details. All you need to do is leave the show a review and then post about the show on your Instagram. I love you guys very much, and I cannot believe that with you being here, we have gotten to almost 50 million downloads and 800 episodes of so much good that this has built such an incredible community. Also, I'm doing a free three-day boot camp starting October 23rd, and if you want to upgrade, you can actually upgrade to the VIP level of that boot camp, which means you can be with me every day for an extra hour on Zoom after the Facebook Live. You also get a workbook every day. This boot camp is all about you finding how to turn your passion into prosperity. How do you take your unique gift and build a thriving, successful, full-fledged business around it so that you get paid to do what you came to the world to do? This is going to be such medicine, especially now in such a dark time. We need to do our job to be more bold, more beautiful, more loving, more resonant, and to really share the ways that we can build more beauty of the world. So this just might be the medicine that we all need you can come join us, the regular experience. Go to kathyheller.com slash passion. And if you want the upgrade, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's only $47 and you'll get this extra, extra depth and you'll be with me on Zoom every day, an hour every day, plus great workbooks. Plus there's gonna be some extra mini courses you're gonna get. Go to kathyheller.com slash upgrade and that's only $47. What I love about the $47 is that we see that people who spend that 47 actually show up and do the whole boot camp and they wind up raving about it. So I highly suggest that you do that. All right, so let's get into part two of this milestone, this 800 episodes. Here's some more clips. The first one is from my amazing friend, Andy Grammer. This is a magical story about how he surrendered, and right when he felt like giving up, the world gave him a sign. Here we go. It had been a full day, and I'd been performing for like eight to 10 hours just on the street, oh and it was fully ignored for, no one put a dollar in my case, no one, not a smile. Just a full ignore situation for a whole day. And I actually had a conversation with this guy where I was packing up my cart to go put it in my mom's minivan. And I screamed in the middle of the street like, okay, now it's a little on you because I'm here. And I've been here and I'm never going to stop and I will never leave. So if that's what you need to know from me, like I'm never leaving if you want my purpose to be that I just play to people that are coming to get jeans for the rest of my life. I'll do that. I'm not going to give up on this. And then I went home and wrote a song called Keep Your Head Up, which was like the song that took me off the street. Yeah. So that's kind of the game. <laughs> like, this is what I try to tell. Like, when I go into speed colleges, I'm like, do you get a little that I'm a little crazy? Like, do you see the crazy in my eye? Kind of what, like, edge you have to be leaning on to, like, push through this thing here? To get to a place where you can be of service to other people, you first have to really stake claim to, I'm here for more than what I'm currently doing, and I will do almost anything. The next story is from the lovely Morgan Harper Nichols, who was feeling so lost and hopeless and then decided to put her heart out in the world, and everything changed. One night in 2016, I was sitting at home, and it was just like the weight of feeling like a failure just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like it's never hit me before. And it was just something about that night where I was like, I don't know if I'll ever recover from this. Like 
Maybe I'm never going to find a pace that makes sense. Maybe I'm always going to be broke. Maybe this is just my life. And it was in that moment that I sat down at my desk and I picked up a journal that I hadn't opened in who knows how long. And I wrote a poem for the first time in years. And the poem starts with, when you start to feel like things should have been better this year, remember Mm -hmm. the mountains and valleys that brought you here. And I just wrote the whole thing down. And then I got ready to close the notebook. And then at the last second, I wrote my name at the bottom. And Mm -hmm. the reason why that's significant for me is because over these years of trying to like just trying all these different things, I had actually started a blog that was kind of like anonymous and I started to write there, but I would never put my name on it. Um, and it was just something about this one that I was like, you know what? I think that this is supposed to have my name on it. So I wrote my name on it and then I took a picture of it and I was like, maybe I'll share it. So I took a picture of it and then I got ready to share it on Instagram. And I was like, no, it's too many people over there. I was like, I'm, I'm going to share it on Pinterest because nobody follows me over there. <laughs> so this is just, that's this will funny. just be my way of sharing it. Um, I'll just share it on Pinterest and forget about it. So that's what I did. This is in November in 2016. A few months later, I started getting DMs on Instagram. People were saying, Hey, did you see this, uh, reality star? She posted your poem. Like there's a poem on her page with your name on it. Did you write that? Wow. And, I went and looked and I was like, yes, I did. I don't know how she found it, but that was me. Um, that's kind of interesting. And then a few days later, I got another message from someone else who like, Hey, did you see this other reality star? She shared your quote. I was like, I don't know how she found that. I was like, I posted that on Pinterest one time. I was like, Oh wait, yeah, Mm -hmm. Pinterest. And I went and looked at Pinterest and that pin had been pinned over a hundred thousand times. Oh my God. Um, till this day, I don't know where it took off. I don't know how it got to that point. Um, I mean, I had a Pinterest, but it wasn't something I was really like promoting or sharing. No. Right. And I, till this day, I have no idea how that happened. And from there, that one coin just started to get shared more and more. And people started to ask me, do you have more of that? And I was like, no, that was just like a one-time thing. But people were asking, they're like, do you have more poems about this? Like, can you write more? And I was like, well, okay. I mean, I don't know what, I, I don't know what's ahead <laughs> anyway. I might as well give it a shot. I might as well try. So honestly, that was the the launching pad to where I've been over the past two years of sharing art at the capacity that I'm sharing it. I was still struggling with self-doubt and feeling like this is just a thing to buy the time until I figure out what my thing is. Um, I don't really see how this is going to pay any bills. I don't see how this is going to sustain itself, but I'll just keep doing it because it's something about, and what I learned, one of the biggest things I learned from this is something too, when other people start to, talk to you about what you're doing. Yes. It makes you realize like, Oh, wait a second. Like this is bigger than me. Maybe there Mm -hmm. is something here. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what was happening for me. It's like, once I started to read these messages, I'm like, these are real people. These are real people who I don't know who are being encouraged by this. I don't know how they're being encouraged by this. I'm like, this was so deeply personal for me 
but you know, maybe there's something to that. And I just kind of had this weird thing where I was like, I don't want to let them down, you know, because I, I would get messages from people who would say things like, I just lost a loved one. And this was really mm. encouraging. And, you know, that's, that really humbled me because it was like, you know, here I am like putting all this pressure on myself, making it all about like, how am I going to make this something? How and it's like, what if this something was just connecting with one other person one at a time? Like, Mm. what if that's what it's about? So speaking of empathy and making people feel seen, I want to share this beautiful piece from Brian Baumgartner about what the show The Office really represented. How I ended every single interview that I did was I played them a clip, which was the final words that were ever spoken on The Office. Mm -hmm. And it's um, basically Pam, Jenna Fisher, uh, the character of Pam is, is basically asked, and I'll paraphrase the first part, basically asked, why did they make a documentary about Dunder Mifflin? She says, I don't know why this was a, a good subject of a documentary. And she says, but there's beauty in ordinary things. Isn't that kind of the point? And for me, that Greg Daniels wrote those words and that that's how the show ended, for me, that was the point. And I think you get talked to all the time about comfort. The show brings people comfort and try to get like at the root of that. And I think it's exactly what you just talked about. The building is not beautiful. The people in it, the people in it don't look. Don't like, you dare say that. Don't, don't look like they're on the cast of friends, but that an ordinary person has beauty and value. And I think that's why when people are going through a hard time, even though on its surface, snarky things are said, inappropriate things are said, bad behavior is done, chili is spilled on the floor, like all of this ridiculousness. But at its heart, these are people that care about each other and are, and, and the show is trying to search for beauty within these ordinary people. And while we're on the topic of The Office, I want to share the story of Rain Wilson about what led him to being cast on one of the best TV shows of all time. The truth is, the part that I got before Dwight on The Office was a character named Arthur on Six Feet Six Under. Six Feet Under. Love that. On Alan Ball. And that part, and I did 13 episodes of that show, um, that, that's the part that launched my career. And mm-hmm. I remember... I was driving down to Orange County with my wife to go see one of those Cirque du Soleil shows, only it's the one on horses, <laughs> Falia or something like that, where they're like yeah. jumping around on horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and my manager called and I was like, Hey, I'm driving. And he's like, pull over. And I was like, really? He's like, pull over. And I pulled over on the side of the freeway in Orange County. And he's like, you got this part of Arthur. You know, it's at least, you know, 10 episodes to start. This is one of the hottest shows on HBO. Um, he said, you don't understand. Your entire life is about to change. And that was the moment when wow. I was just like, holy shit. Like, this is all. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is everything that I've worked for is kind of launched with that role. And that was the role that got me Dwight. And so I kind of, I hate to say it. I'm not being cocky. I kind of knew I was going to get Dwight. <laughs> I had. You know, who I else could with, do that? Well, I just knew it was my part. I had met with the showrunner. I knew they so really liked good. me. I kind of had uh. some inside scoop. But I will say that that show was almost canceled about 13 different times. So we knew we had something comedically very special, but we really, really 
really did not know that we were going to make a hundred episodes and go nine years and that it would have all these different lives on streaming services like Netflix and a whole new generations of kids would discover it. So I'm so amazed and grateful at that. And now here's another fun story from Cheryl Hines, who's a dear friend of mine. She's also on the legendary show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And as someone who is obsessed with Curb, I had to ask her what the audition experience was like with Larry David. Then I got an audition for Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it was all improvised. I didn't know, I really didn't know who Larry David was. I knew that he had created Seinfeld with, with Jerry Seinfeld, but I didn't know anything about him, you know. And um, they said, listen, when you go into the room, don't touch Larry. He doesn't like for people to touch him. <laughs> I was like, okay. And they said, um, and it needs to feel real because the tone of the show it's, it needs to feel real. And if it doesn't, the audition will be over. And I was like, okay. And then I went in and uh, met Larry and I just sparked with him. You know, it was interesting because I was expecting like a troll in the corner with long nails and a cloak. And he was, he seemed much more normal than I was expecting. But we just started improvising and uh, they wanted an unknown talent, which worked out great for me because nobody knew me. (laughs) And then they hired me. That's my little story. So through Cheryl, I had the honor of meeting her husband, Bobby Kennedy Jr., who's become such a dear friend. He is one of the most loving, humble, brave people. He's also running right now as an independent because his whole thing is about healing the divide. He wants to work with everyone in this country, and he has so many beautiful things to say that I love. He's just adding such goodness into the world. So let's listen to what he has to say. My dad, about two weeks before he died, he gave me a book, and it was a book by Camus. And it was called The Plague. It was about a a city in North Africa that's unnamed that is being ravaged by an illness. They don't don't understand. It's about a doctor and how he relates to it. And he's torn because they don't know how to treat it. And they know that it's contagious. So that if you have contact with somebody who has it, you're highly likely to die. Very, very high infection fatality rate. And that the only way to stay safe is to stay locked up. And the first half of the book is him having a conversation in his head that, you know, his job and his mission in life is to treat people who are ill. And yet there's nothing he can really do to help anybody. He doesn't know what it is. And, you know, he's very likely to die if he goes out and does his profession. But he has this debate with himself. And in the end, he goes out and he consoles people. And that, that sacrifice that he makes of doing his duty brings order to the chaos and meaning to this very, very chaotic universe. And my father, when he handed me this book, he gave it to me with this particular intensity because a lot of times he'd give me books to read, but he gave me this and he said, I want you to read this. And he said it very, very directly. So in the years after he died, I read that book two or three times trying to decipher exactly what it was that he gave me. What I feel like I know what that is now. And Camus was an existentialist, and he was kind of a legatee of the Stoics, which were Greek and, to some extent, Roman ideology. And the big hero of the Stoics was Sisyphus. 
And Sisyphus did an act that caused him to be cursed by the gods to push a stone up the hill for all of eternity. He would get it to the top of the hill, never be able to get it over, and it would always roll back on him. And he'd have to walk down, and oftentimes injured, et cetera, and do it again. But in the minds of the Stoic, Sisyphus was a happy man because he put his shoulder to the wheel. He knew what his duty was, and he did it. And that is kind of how we contribute to the order of the universe. And, you know, a lot of people have said to me, because I, from taking positions on the medical freedom issues, that I've suffered a lot, the loss of a lot of friendships, of family members, the income, of status, of my capacity to, you know, these political relationships that I had easily made over all of my life, and I've lost almost all of them, and all of these things. And people say, oh, that's very hard on you. And I feel like, no, that's not hard on me. It's a privilege to have something that, a duty that I'm supposed to do. And what I try to do the way that I try to live my life is I never make predictions and I try to have no expectations. Because if you don't have expectations, you never get disappointed. The only thing I have control over is my own conduct. Is that little piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And, you know, I have to get up every morning and say, reporting to goodies, sir, and go out and push the rock up the hill. And whether I get it over there or not is irrelevant. Whether I win the presidency or not is ultimately irrelevant. I only have control over what I do on a day-to-day basis. The, the outcomes are all in God's hands. I have to have faith in and I can feel peaceful and content within myself, which is ultimately the objective, as long as I continue to be of service and just keep doing the next right thing. All right. Well, here's a story from Barry Connick Jr. about his father and the lesson that he taught him about humility. Can I tell you one that I've never told to anybody? Oh, my God. Yes. All right. So um, I have to tell the story to give you the ending, but I would rather leave out the part that shines light on me, but I have to tell that part. So I was doing a movie in New Orleans and every day I would drive past this particular area under the Claiborne Bridge where there were 50 homeless people every day, sleeping in tents, whatever. It, it bugged me. So I, I, I decided to go to McDonald's and, you know, buy, you know, a hundred egg McMuffins or whatever, whatever it was. So I put all the stuff in the car and I brought it to him and I noticed when I was handing it out that they, they weren't like particularly effusive, right? They just kind of took it. And I just thought that I didn't care, but I just thought that was interesting. Well, I was in New Orleans. My dad was there and I really wanted my dad to know that I did this. So he'd be proud of me, which is not the reason I did it. And I shouldn't have thought about it, but I'm telling you this to be as frank with you as I can. So I was looking for the right opportunity to tell my dad, you know, like, so I didn't want to make it sound like, Dad, I gave all this food to these homeless people. I, I was telling the story from the perspective of how they responded to it, because I figured that would be more casual. So I said, Dad, I gave this food to these homeless people, and um, I didn't. they weren't like really thankful. They just kind of took it. And I was expecting, oh, that's interesting. You'd think they would be thankful. You know what he said? They treated me the same way when I brought them food. He had never told me that story. And... It, it would hit me like a brick wall. Like I learned so many lessons that day. A, um, you don't need your right hand to know what the left hand is doing all the time. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for you 
Are you doing this for praise for you? Or are you doing it for those people? Are you really doing it for those people? And all kind, and the fact that my dad didn't tell me that, the fact that he did it and didn't tell me that, like, a, a, and I'm like, what else has he done? You know, and it, it was it was a great lesson in in humility and love, and um, you know, that's just like what I can sense you try to do. That's what I try to do. I just try to be better, man. Try to be better. In the title track on this album, along with my faith. There's the bridge. And you know what a bridge is in music, right? So in the bridge, it says, I just got to work a little harder right now. I just got to dig a little deeper right now. I just got to look a little closer at myself. Take my time, keep my faith. The next clip is another example about the lessons we learn from our parents. Here's Howard Schultz talking about what his mother said to him that set him up for success. You know, you've also, you talked about your mom and Mm -hmm. how she painted a picture for you that this was not the last stop on the train, which makes me cry. It's so beautiful, mm. especially how you say it, because where you lived was the last stop on the L train, right? In Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, there is a physical sign uh, in Canarsie when you get off the L train that this is the last stop. and uh, It's more than a, a sign. It's, it is the last stop. But my mother, uh, as I wrote in the book, had just an incredible belief in the country and that our standing in life was not going to define her son's ability to overcome public housing. And uh, she just imprinted in me that I was going to get out. I was going to go to college. And, and then also my mother suffered from depression. She, and in you know, those years, that was not a disease that was right. easily e- either diagnosed or people admitted it. Yep. So between my father's lack of purpose in terms of finding quality of work and feeling as if he was a victim in my mother's depression. The one thing she had was this belief in, in the country and that I was going to get out. And now I want to share some wisdom for Angela Duckworth about the relationship between grit and optimism and what it takes to be resilient. Confidence is, I think, a bedrock to taking action. And I know that we often think of human beings as irrational now. And, you know, a lot of psychological science is about how we sometimes make mistakes in our thinking. And I just talked about having self-talk that can be inaccurate right. and maladaptive. At the same time, I want to say that human beings are um, reasonable in the sense that if you don't think you can succeed at something, you don't try very hard. So very often it is a lack of confidence that holds people back. Now, the question is, like, how do I deal with that problem? How do I get over imposter syndrome? How do I deal with my own insecurities? And again, I think let's begin with acceptance and awareness, right? I mean, I spent a lot of time in my 20s kind of beating myself up about, you know, fill in the blank, right? It's like, oh, I really should be a better daughter-in-law. Right. And I, you know, should be exercising more and I should be like making nicer dinner and, and I should be more accomplished. Yeah, I mean, tell me about it. So, yeah. so how do you get out of yeah. that? Well, th- again, start with just a little bit of acceptance and awareness, right? Like, hey, I noticed that I'm having these thoughts of um, inadequacy. I'm also just going to accept that for a moment. Like, it's okay to feel inadequate and I'm not going to beat myself up about beating myself up, right? Like, let's not (laughs) add fuel to the fire. But I think a healthy dose of self-awareness and um, self-acceptance followed by a kind of practical, you know, okay, well, do I want to have these thoughts? Since I've noticed that I have them and I know a lot of people have them, like, do I want to have them and are they accurate? Um, I think that's the very first step in the very long journey towards, you know, taking yourself from a 
you know, fixed mindset, pessimistic, like I'm not good enough. I'll never be able to do this. I can't change toward, you know, those people that we all meet in life who, God, they seem to have boundless optimism and energy. They seem to react to these adversities with like, oh, what can I learn from it? I mean, sometimes it can be annoying to us. Yeah. Just so positive, but really, right. we, right. it, like, we would like to be like them. And I do think it's possible to, to make that journey. And here's another one of my favorite stories from Tim Grover. He told us about this amazing moment, what it was like to meet with one of the most legendary athletes of all time. I saw a little article in the paper said, hey, how Michael Jordan was tired of taking a physical abuse for the Detroit Pistons. So I said, okay, let me see. Let me think about this. I was like, I'm going to send 14 letters to every single player on the Bulls organization except Michael Jordan. I said, he's already so good, but if he sees the work I do with somebody else, he may take notice and I could get with him later on. And back then, remember, no emails, no text messages, no nothing. So you had to, I literally handled the letters, went out, got stamps. I put them in the mail. I put them in the mailbox. Right? I said, we'll see what happens. Obviously, one of the letters got to one of the players. Michael actually pulled it out of somebody else's locker and said, hey, find out what this kid's about. And the team physician and the athletic uh, trainer at the time, they contacted me and literally put me through three months of more vigorous questions and training than I had in my six years of college to make sure I knew what I was doing. But they didn't tell me who the client was. They had no, they did not tell me who it was. So after three months, they gave me an address. They're like, Hey, go, uh, here's the address. Go ring the person who wants to meet you at one thirty. So I go to the, I go to the house. You know, before that, this was before the big gated house. So I just rang the doorbell. Nobody answered, rang it twice. Nobody answered, rang it third time. Finally, Michael Jordan ends up opening up the door. No way. Yeah. So that was my moment. That was my moment where, and I'm not a starstruck person, but everything I had prepared for up to that time, everything I'd seen my parents do, everything I, I sacrificed, taking the low end jobs, preparing myself, knowing more about my craft then the next person allowed me to sit down in this, in front of this individual, explain to him what my philosophies were, what my thoughts were. And it was totally different than what everybody else had brought up to him. And he said, Hey, listen, let's try it out for 30 days. 30 days turned into 15 years. He was actually my first professional client. All right. And the caveat to the story that nobody that I'm, I really don't share with too many people is for the first three years, he never paid me. Look, not because he didn't want to, I never asked him for it. I never asked him for it. And then he finally, one day we finished the work on, he went upstairs and he came back down and he goes, I've never paid you. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, how much do you want? I said, Michael, that's not for me to say. I said, you tell me what, what my value is to you. Right. He wrote a check, put it in the envelope. To this day, I don't know how much that check was. I took that envelope and handed it to my parents. I said, thank you. Thank you. I think the check was pretty significant because my dad got a new car. My mom redid the whole house, but this was a way of me saying to them, thank you for believing in me. And I also love this origin story from Rachel Ray, who had no plans of being a television host, but one thing led to another and the doors kept opening. 
I was working at a market and no one was buying the groceries. They were only buying the food I started making after my boss fired the chef and hired me just because she liked my food. Weird. So I started making the food for the prepared foods case and I was already the buyer of the market. I only became the buyer of that market because I was mugged twice at gunpoint and beaten up pretty severely the second time, which is why I moved back to upstate New York. Oh my God. I couldn't even get my job for a long time. I couldn't get my job for a long time because they only had one buyer and I had to wait until she got married and moved to Canada before I got my job. Oh my God. So we were trying to sell more groceries one Christmas. We didn't have enough sales. And I started teaching a cooking class called 30, 30 minute meals. There it is. And in, in three hours, I would teach you six basic recipes that you could make in five different ways. So that by the end of three hours, you could leave knowing how to make a month of different meals if you gave us three hours. Oh, my God. And that's how it started. And that became a local news segment. And then that became a Food Network show. And then that became a big Food Network show and another Food Network show and on and on. But that's how it started. And now we couldn't do a Best of Roundup without including the epic moment from Greg Franklin, the Cheesecake Ninja. I'm so proud of what he's done just by following this little spark that told him, hey, you should go make a cheesecake. And I know that there will one day be a movie made about his life because it's an incredible scene. Take a listen. I was making plastic bags for dog food companies and cat food companies, and I did not like that job. So I would work all night for 12 hours, and then I would come home on my last day, and I would immediately start making cheesecakes. Or I would make cheesecakes before I would work that rotating shift nights, and then I would work all night, and then I would get in my car as soon as I got off on that last day, and then I would go sell cheesecakes. Oh, my God. And you're what are you, just like feeding something into a machine all day? Not even that. Most of the time, I'm just sitting. I was sitting there making sure that it stayed running. Oh, my God. I want to cry for you. I hate this. <laughs> oh. Oh my God. And, and it probably doesn't pay you six figures a year. No, no, no. It, it paid decent. It allowed me to do what I wanted to, but I'm like, hey, let's hurry up and get this shift over so I can go home and do what I actually yeah. want to do. And, uh, as soon as I left, it was kind of like the building disappeared and didn't exist anymore. And I didn't have to worry about that for several days and I could do what I wanted to selling cheesecake and being a people person to people that I actually liked because they liked what I was making. Yeah. And then eventually you're doing this. So what happened? The next big thing was I had uh, went into work like I always do. And uh, there was a particularly bad day where there was some mistakes made and it was my fault. And I got in a little trouble for it. This was July 24th or 25th. Wow. And uh, I went throughout the day and then went home. I was off for my normal days. And then I went in on a Monday, which was July 31st and National Cheesecake Day. So uh, I was wow. kind of slightly annoyed that I had to 
work at my full-time job because yes, it was National, national Cheesecake, cheesecake day. day. It was like yeah. my, national, my national holiday and I didn't <laughs> yeah. get a play in it. <laughs> so I went to work and I'd been working for a couple hours and I got called into the office and my supervisor said, um, we're going to go ahead and let you go uh, since you made your errors last week. We can't have you work here anymore. And I'm like, I really wasn't upset. I kind of looked at him. I'm like, couldn't you have told me this on Friday? Because today is my national holiday. And I did you say that? Brought, I did. <laughs> I love it. And he, he kind of looked at me. And I'm like, it's National Cheesecake Day. And it's like, oh, I didn't really think about that. And I said, eh, you wouldn't have because you're not the Cheesecake Ninja. So my supervisor was walking me out the door and uh, he said, hey, now you can sell cheesecakes full time. And I said, that is not funny because now I don't have a job at all and I don't sell enough cheesecakes to uh, warrant doing that. Mm -hmm. So I was on my way home and I was pretty terrified because I was going to have to tell my wife that I got let go from my job. Yeah. I walked in and she kind of looked at me and said, well, you're going to have to start selling more cheesecakes. I said, I got to do what I got to do. Another one of my favorite episodes is with Bronnie Ware. And this story she told about her patients is just so powerful. Listen to this. My favorite story from this is with Joseph, who's an elderly man, 91. He was a Holocaust survivor. He worked all his life. And... At the end, he was in tears. His family didn't want him to know he was dying. He knew he was dying and he asked me, am I dying? And I said, yes, Joseph, you are. And his family just kept pretending he wasn't bringing in massive meals when all he really wanted was five grapes or something like that. And I don't want to judge anyone because I don't know what, how they even survived getting through what they got through. But. In the end, he was in tears to me. I was giving a foot massage, which I used to do a lot with my, my patients, hand massages or foot massages or brush their hair and stand, had long hair, whatever. And he just, he was in tears and he just said, they don't know me. They don't even know me. And, you know, they don't know me at all. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'll be, do you want me to bring them in here? Let's let them join this conversation. Oh, no, it's, it's too hard now. It's too late now. And I said, but I can open the conversation for you if you need. No, it's too late. And, you know, he's sobbing in my arms, this 91-year-old man who's been through all of that and just felt that he couldn't express his feelings to his family and he'd never been able to. He just, his love was a practical love of providing and looking after his children, teaching them very well about money. And, you know, so they'd always be safe and secure, which they were. But yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking to have a 91 year old man sobbing saying, my family don't know me at all. And I don't know how to talk to them about that and not wanting to, not having the courage to at that point or the energy to as well. Yeah. And it is freeing. I mean, I've worked through that now and I'm really honest and I show my vulnerabilities and I, I just say what I, whatever I need to now. And, when I think of how much work it was to protect my heart and keep quiet compared to how flowing and free it is once you break, you know, you chip mm. away at that wall and dismantle it, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful just to be human and let people see who you are. And we're sort of wrapping up here. I want to share this beautiful message from someone I have been so blessed to know who's made the biggest impact on my life, who is right now 
in Jerusalem with his children, with his wife, going through absolute horror. And listen to what he says. I truly wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have him in my life. And I don't know enough words to express the gratitude for who he is and the fact that he just shines the light so beautifully. He said so many incredible wise things, but this is one of my favorite quotes from him. The way that Kabbalah understands God is that God is not an individual being somewhere over there, but rather God is the universal self, that you are a soul and you are a part of what's called the soul of souls. That's what we mean when we say God. And that you and I and every other human being and actually all creatures are part of one shared self, one soul. They're like waves in an ocean of consciousness, each and every one of us. And that's why only love is real, because love is the realization that even though I'm not you and you're not me, I might be the power of lighting and you might be the power of cooling and you might be the power of heating, but we're all manifestations, manifestations of this one energy, this one self, which is electricity. And we all know the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, what most people don't know is the continuation of that verse from the Bible is, I am all there ever is, was, and will be. I am reality. There is only one I am, which means that if there's only one I am, and you're you as an I am, and I as an I am, arrays of, facets of, if God were white light, we would each be a different color in the spectrum of that white light. If God were the sun, we'd be rays of the sun. If God were the ocean, we'd be drops in the ocean. These are metaphors. But what's important is understanding is that when we say God, we mean the universal soul, one I am, that we all share. And you become part of this one self, this one soul. And that is the search for God. The search for God is the search for love. Because love is a realization that on the deepest level, we are one. So love your neighbor as yourself is qualified when you realize that the higher self, the ultimate self, is the one self. And whether you want to call the one self God, it doesn't matter what word you use. What matters is what deed you do to realize and live this truth of that shared self that we're all part of. Well, what a way to end a celebration. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for always listening, for always being here, for giving us so much love and support. You are what keeps this going, and I'm so excited for what is ahead. If you want to enter the giveaway, we'll be giving away eight of you will get a $100 gift card. Plus, there's a few other great prizes. You can go to my Instagram to find the details. All you have to do is leave a review for the show and share about the show on your Instagram. If you want to get more of those details, you can go to kathyheller.com slash 800-800, which will lead you to the page where you can find the rest of the details. And if you know someone who would get some value from the show, then please share it. Text them the link to this episode. Share about it. The world needs light and love and that kind of optimism that truly comes from the deepest part of us. We need it now more than ever. 
Before we go, I want to remind you I'm doing this free boot camp, three days. Come spend three days with me. Go to kathyheller.com slash passion. Or if you want the upgrade, you can go to kathyheller.com slash upgrade. Either way, we're going to be together talking about you, your gifts, your assignment in this life, and how you can cultivate that into a full-fledged, thriving business so that you can do what you were made to do for a living, which means you don't even have a job. You're doing your life's work. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have a great weekend. 